Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A term we hear often is the achievement gap that refers to the difference between students who perform well academically in school compared to those that don't. Sometimes achievement gap describes the schools themselves and their standardized test scores. A term not heard quite as often, maybe even more important when it comes to academics. The opportunity gap. Students who attend schools without the same resources as schools with more money, and that's just one example. Our guest today is considered an expert on the subject. Dr. Paul Gorski, an associate professor of integrative studies and a research fellow in the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being at George Mason University, where he teaches courses such as social justice education, poverty, wealth, and inequality in the United States, social justice consciousness, and personal transformation, and school through students' eyes, and animal rights and human education. He also has written several books. Dr. Gorski, welcome to the program. Thanks. Very happy to be here. Also joining us today is Sherry Woodall. She's the principal at Steelton High Spire High School right down the road here from the station. Ms. Woodall, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You have a question or a comment today. Give us a call. 1-800-729-7532. That is the number to call. You also can send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter at smarttalkwitf. That's at Smart Talk WITF. Again, the phone number is 1 800 729 7532. All right, uh, Dr. Gorski, let me start with you. And by the way, uh, one of the reasons we're speaking with Dr. Gorski is he's going to be in central Pennsylvania here in the next week, and we'll talk about that appearance in just a moment. But here's a sentiment we've heard many times growing up and have passed on to our own children. If you work hard, do well in school, and follow the rules, you can be anything you want to be. Now, that could be one of the tenets of the American dream. But you've said that that's not actually the case. Why? Well, you know, my own people, my, my mother's side of the family, were uh, Appalachian coal miners. And I, it's hard for me to think of anybody. I mean, I'm sure there are people who have worked as hard as they worked. Uh, but I, I don't think there's there are many people who have worked harder than people doing uh, shifts in a coal mine. So uh, seeing that generation after generation, and my grandma was the valedictorian of her graduating class, and, and you know, there are still people in, in these towns where, where basically the only options are the coal miner or the, the, the military. And so access and opportunity are just not distributed that way, uh, even in our education uh even in our education system. And, and look, I want to be able to tell my students as well that if they work hard enough, they can be anything they, they want to be. Uh, but the truth is, uh, we, we, we just don't have that kind of equality in the United States at this point. Why do you say that? Well, uh, even looking at how educational opportunity is distributed uh, in, in the United States, uh, you know, where we might think of the education as being the, the great equalizer, where we have the wealthiest kids going to schools that have uh, much smaller class sizes, much more experienced teachers, teachers much more likely to be certified in the subjects uh, that, that they're teaching, schools that are uh, much uh, better equipped in terms of resources, and we have the, the uh, on average, uh, the lowest income students attending schools that, that don't quite look like that. It doesn't mean that the teachers in those schools aren't passionate, 
capable teachers, but even the teachers in those schools often don't have the same resources as the teachers in the wealthier schools. Uh, so we just don't have that, that sort of uh, equal opportunity right now that, that people imagine that we have. Now, we're going to talk about specifics in just a moment, but uh, Sherry, well, let's talk about uh, your high school, uh, Steelton High Spire, and I don't know what the percentages are exactly. I looked online and saw that uh, you have a, a high percentage of students that are living below the poverty line. I saw one that was like 75%. Is that accurate? Our current numbers are about 83% below the poverty line. Below the poverty line. Okay. So what does that mean on a daily basis for students coming to school, teachers, the resources that they have, what does it kind of give us an overview of what that means when you have such a high percentage of students that are living in poverty? One of the big things that we, one of the big challenges that we have is truancy. Our students are coming to school late because they're taking care of younger siblings that go to the elementary school, or they're not coming to school at all because they're taking care of younger siblings that aren't at school age yet because their parents are working. Their parents are working two or three shifts to make the ends meet. So the students aren't necessarily at school on time, so it's hard for them to have the academics. As for resources, this year we are starting to implement a one-to-one technology ratio with our students with Chromebooks. But hey, what's, that, what's that mean, one-to-one you know, -one with Chromebooks? We're trying to ensure that all of our students in our school have Chromebooks and Internet access so they can gain the resources that are more updated. Our books are currently outdated. We're working on a seven-year cycle to gain curricular materials. Our curriculum needs to be rewritten and updated as well to align to new and evolving standards. And the Chromebooks and the Internet Access help us to gain those those resources, those external resources, since we do not have the internal resources. But that's just this year. Prior to that, technology was very difficult for our students to come across. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Dr. Gorski, when you hear a description of a school, a school district like that, or in this case, a high school, what do you think? Well, I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it's unfortunate because, uh, I, I mean, part of the challenge that you just heard was that there are these sort of bigger barriers that impact students who are trying to uh, achieve at school, barriers like a lack of living wage jobs so that you have uh, lower income parents who might be working two or three jobs, cobbling stuff together. Uh, and so, so, the, so uh, and then uh, these kids are in school and the schools have to try to grapple with okay, well, how do we manage the fact that society itself hasn't presented uh, uh, equal opportunity? And I, I just, you know, the, the thing that I think about when I hear about that school is uh, how I'm sure wonderfully committed uh, everyone uh, in that, that, that school is in trying to come up with uh, solutions to problems that we as a greater society need to address. Well, and I think that, uh, you know, that's going to be part of our discussion. And what often happens uh, is, you know, and I didn't want to get your responses to this, is that, uh, you know, many people want to point a finger and say, well, here's the reason that this is happening. Here's the one reason or here's the simple solution when 
Dr. Gorski, I think what you're describing here is that it is not a simple solution that just saying, okay, we're going to send our kids to school, they're going to be ready to, to, to learn, they're going to come out, they're going to work hard, they're going to be great students, uh, and then you know they'll go on to college or whatever kind of education they need for th- their careers, and all will be fine and dandy. What you're saying is that this is a larger societal problem, right? Yes, absolutely, a larger societal problem. And unfairly, the uh, the challenge for solving that problem in the U.S. has been sort of placed at the at the feet of uh, teachers and school administrators, uh, as uh, you know, as they've been receiving fewer and fewer resources uh, uh, to to address it. And this is why educators are my heroes. I mean, that they're not going into these jobs for the money; they're going into it because they care about these uh, youth, even as, um, you know, the, the, the resources are, are scarcer and scarcer to, to try to solve these problems. You know, Sherry Woodall, I'm, I'm curious, uh, is Dr. Gorski just said that uh, many educators are not going into teaching or education for the money. Steel to High Spire, I mean, Stephen High Spire is a good uh, school district, uh, but you were telling me beforehand that you're from Western Pennsylvania. You'd worked here in Central Pennsylvania for a decade or so. Why Stephen High Spire? I mean, you probably could find a cushy, cushy, okay? And I use that. I'm being kind of sarcastic. Um, suburban school district job. Why Stephen High Spire, a, a district that does have some challenges? It reminds me a lot of my hometown, um, and it's a way for me to give back to the community as well. I feel like my presence at Steel High helps to motivate the teachers and keep them going through and stay motivated so they can ultimately help benefit the students and help change society. I mean, have, were you ever tempted to say, you know, I probably could do the same thing, but uh, in, in conditions that were easier? I've definitely been tempted to say that, but ultimately when I think about it and what my role is here on the earth, I'm here to change society. I could go to a school, a nice suburban affluent district. I'm not there to make a difference in those kids' lives. They're going to be successful regardless of whether or not I'm an administrator there. It's still high. I'm going to make a difference. I want to ask the question of you and then go back to Dr. Gorski on this. Uh, the, the very first question I ask him about if you work hard, do well in school and follow the rules, you could be anything you want to be. Uh, as I said, you know, that's something we all have heard growing up and we've told our own children. Um, don't you run the risk if, if you tell students that that's not the case, that you know, a, a term we've heard here during the, the last year a lot, that the system is rigged and that they don't have the kind of motivation they need. Sherry, let me ask you first, and then Dr. Gorska, how do you weigh in on this? Well, you do risk an opportunity, or you do risk having students shut down if you say, hey, it doesn't really matter, you're already in a rigged system. You do have to have them believe that they have all the opportunities available to them as everybody else. However, they're smart. They know. They can look around and see other districts when they travel, especially for athletics teams. Oh, look, they have this. We, we're practicing with riggedy old helmets, and they have a multi-million dollar stadium that they're in. They can see those kind of things. So the students see the social injustice already. It just motivates them to work harder to overcome it. Dr. Gorski, what about that? I mean, is there the potential that you're you're telling kids that the system is rigged and it takes away some of their motivation? 
I would say I, I don't think so. I, I agree that I think the students themselves know uh, that that they're getting the short end of the stick and that their opportunities aren't the same. So, uh, you know, I think it's just the opposite. You know, when I was in school and people said that to me, my thought was, well, what are you saying about my family? Because my family works hard. My family's never been in legal trouble. And they've been uh, poor for several generations. So, uh, when some, so, so the insinuation to me was that you, must, you are saying that my family isn't working hard enough when I know that they were. So, so the, you know, the, the, the kids are on to that. I, I don't think we're fooling, uh, I don't think we're fooling anybody who has experienced marginalization. But, but also think about it. I mean, anybody, for instance, think about many uh, uh, people of color who have um, experienced racism but done great things, have, have written about, hey, I knew I had to work twice as hard as white people in order to achieve what white people were achieving because the odds were stacked against me. I, I think people who are experiencing poverty already know this, so I don't think we're fooling them by saying, if you work hard enough, uh, you can achieve whatever you want. And we're going to talk more about stereotypes in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Uh, we're talking about uh, how to reach children and teach children who are living in poverty. Our guest is Dr. Paul Gorski, an associate professor of integrative studies and a research fellow in the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being at George Mason University. He has authored uh, several books on inequality, uh, teaching children in poverty, and he'll be uh, speaking here in central Pennsylvania for the Capital Area Intermediate Unit, and we'll have some more information on, on that appearance as well. Uh, Sherry Woodall is a principal at Steelton High Spire High School. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, Dr. Gorski, you kind of alluded to this just before we went to the break. Uh, you said that uh, you have written that losing stereotypes is one of the most important things we can do. And I think you're talking about uh, stereotypes of uh, children living in poverty, families living in poverty, but not just living in poverty, but also the racial stereotypes, the gender stereotypes. W what do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, our understanding of, of uh, you know, our understanding of things like poverty and gender, uh, sexism, racism, and those sorts of things. But the way that we interpret uh, behaviors, if we interpret those things through stereotypes, then we're only going to end up with misunderstandings about what, what the problems are. So, for instance, if I believe uh, that the reason why low-income kids are showing up, have a higher tardy rate or a higher absentee rate, is because they don't care about education which I think is probably the perception most people have, uh, then uh, the solutions that we can come up with to address that as a problem are going to be solutions that really have nothing to do with the problem. Uh, and so, uh, you know, so it, it's critical for all of us to think about what are the stereotypes and biases that I have that might be driving the decisions I'm making about my teaching or about the policy in this district uh, or, or uh, you know, whatever our spheres of influence are, uh, 
um, because those are, you know, those are the sorts of things. You know, the other thing about that, too, of course, is that the kids know if, we're, if we have those stereotypes and we have those uh, biases. Uh, the, the kids know. And so, uh, you know, the last thing we want to do is, is impact students' motivation because they believe that the, the adults around them have these attitudes uh, about them. Now, you've just listed, you touched on a few stereotypes, but if you were to point to one or two of the biggest stereotypes that we have about children living in poverty and how they're being educated, what would they be? I, I think the one that I, that I see the most is uh, the stereotype that, that families, not just the kids, but the entire families, that they don't value education the way that middle class or wealthy people value education. And of course, there's a lot of research going back to the, all the way back to the 1970s that demonstrates basically that everybody cares about education. But sometimes what we interpret as not caring about education, you know, the low-income parent not showing up to the opportunity for family engagement really has nothing to do with how they value education and everything to do with access and opportunity. Like, do they have transportation? Do they have paid leave in their work? Uh, are they working night shifts? Do they have child care? Um, well, I think to me that's the most uh, important one. Can I play devil's advocate with you for just a moment? Because the things you just described, I've heard people say, okay, we, we know that those conditions exist, but when it comes to your child's education, wouldn't you find any way you can to get to that teacher, that, 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 that meeting with a teacher? Yeah, well, I think that most parents do that, but I don't know if you've ever worked an hourly job. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> The problem, the problem is now I don't get paid for those couple hours. Yeah. And, and this is the thing that most people don't understand about the challenge that many low-income families have, which is I have to make that decision. I might have a hard time feeding my kid if I take – it might be three hours off a job for a one-hour uh, you know, for, for one thing at the school because i got to figure out transportation and, and, and child care and, and, uh, and everything else. So I have to decide whether I can keep the heat on or whether I can uh, go to the school. And I know as a low-income parent what you're going to think of me if I, if I don't show up and mm. what you're going to think of my child if I don't show up. But the truth is I'm making the responsible decision. Maslow's hierarchy, i got to feed my kids. i got to keep the heat on. So uh, this is the decision that I make, and, and, and it's the responsible decision. So, so Miss Wood, I want to bring bring uh, Sherry in. Uh, stereotypes that you see in your own high school. I mean, are there stereotypes out there that, uh, when I say that you see, that maybe there are some people who have assumptions about the students in in your high school that just aren't true. That to, just to echo exactly what Dr. Gorski said, a lot of people have the stereotype of oh, those parents don't care, those kids don't care. They do, and exactly what Dr. Gorski said. I have parents, they'll call me, and they'll say, I would love to come in and meet with you and the teachers, but if I take off my job, I'm going to lose my job. Not only am I not going to get paid, I will get fired from this position. I'm, we try to do phone conferences or Skype or try to do whatever we can with the parents, but even phones, a lot of times they don't have access to phones at work, or they'll have a number, they'll get it changed, and we're the last 
thing on their mind, oh, let me call the office and make sure the office has my new phone number because they're busy making an income so they can feed their family and keep the heat on. Mm. Now, Dr. Gorski, I just saw a quote yesterday in social media from a teacher, and this kind of goes back to what you're saying. And one teacher does not represent all teachers. But this this quote seemed to be this uh, uh, comment uh, from this teacher in an urban school district seemed to be coming from a teacher who was frustrated, said that, you know, I have so many kids who come to school each day not ready to learn. First of all, I don't know exactly what that means, but what do you say when you hear a teacher say that? Well, first of all, I, I just want to clarify that I, I don't think that the major problem here is teachers. I, I think teachers are in a very difficult uh, position, again, because of the lack of attention to these problems that the, that the larger society has. But, but I do think, you know, I think there's a piece to that uh, there's a piece to that, that that is accurate in the sense that uh, they may come to school hungry and they come to school and uh, be worried about how they're going to be bullied because of the shoes that they're wearing or or uh, whatever. And, and it's much more difficult to learn when I'm coping with those stressors. And there's a lot of research about the, the sort of uh, the stressors that people in poverty experience based on all the sorts of things that, that we've been talking about. But I think the important thing is that's not the fault of those kids. And it's, and it's also, for the most part, not the fault of their, of their parents. Of course, there are parents in every economic group who aren't great parents. That's not more true of low-income people than wealthier people. Um, but that's how I have to see it. It's, it's true that low-income kids come into kindergarten and they're not as ready for the stuff that we try to do in kindergarten as, on average, as the wealthier kids. But that's because of access and opportunity. It's not because they don't care about education. I think that's the critical uh, way that we can uh, think about how to interpret comment like that. All right, I want to get into, delve into some more of academic standardized tests and uh, money in particular, because we know that's a big part of this discussion. Uh, politicians talk about getting more money to poor districts, and we know here in Pennsylvania that there's been a wide disparity between the better off districts, those that have a lot of resources, and by that I mean that uh, you know there are tax bases out there, ways that they can get money, and those that don't have those resources. Now, there are reasons why that's happened over the years, but I want to play a clip from a parent of a child who attends schools in Philadelphia. His name is uh, Steve Zellinger, and uh, let me uh, have you listen to this and get your response. More money is needed when students are behind, and a lot of students in Philadelphia, unfortunately, due to the circumstances, are behind, so they need more money to get them up to speed. Um, they need more instruction, they need more teachers, they need to be able to pay those teachers and get those resources, so it's it's a no-brainer, and I think that, you know, the state lawmakers are, you know, discriminating against the cities and it's it's pretty clear to me that that's the case and now so uh, dr. Gorski what do you think about uh, what uh, mr. Selinger had to say well there's a few different pieces in there but I think that uh, you know the major point to me is that he's right that on average the uh, lowest income districts uh, get the least amount of uh, funding per pupil uh, and so that's a problem that needs to be resolved. And, and I also think that if we're, you know, this is kind of the difference between equality and equity. 
that I, I do think that in order to create equal opportunity, that, uh, that we need to put more funding into the schools that have the most people who have the least opportunity. So, uh, you know, so I agree with that in, in principle. But what about the last part of his statement where he said that uh, he felt that uh, there are state legislators who are discriminating against uh, school districts like uh, the city of Philadelphia that has a high concentration of poverty? Um, I, I don't know the, the situation in Philadelphia specifically, but of course there is a uh, there is a history of that of that sort of thing all over the country. That was probably most well documented uh, in Jonathan Kozel's book, Savage Inequalities, where you can see, you know, there's uh, that there might be a district that's right outside of Chicago that is spending two times uh, per student per school year what uh, what the district in Chicago is spending per student uh, per per school year. So that's uh, you know, I think that's absolutely the case. Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, you know, the, someone listening to this conversation may think that it's all about money. Uh, when I have heard people say that it is not all about money. Yes, uh, schools do need uh, uh, money from the state or, uh, you know, they need the resources. But, uh, for example, the city of Philadelphia, city of Harrisburg here in uh, central Pennsylvania, has one of the, the, the both those districts spend uh, as much or not more than most per pupil, per student, than other districts across Pennsylvania, but yet uh, test scores, academics, uh, that they don't measure up. So what do you say when people say, well, money is just not the answer, not the only answer? Well, it's not the only answer. <laughs> so you, you, can't, uh, you can't infuse uh, a situation with money and then keep doing the same thing you were doing before uh, and expect different results. So, for instance, uh, if we, you know, another big problem is in wealthier schools and wealthier districts, and in fact, in wealthier classrooms within mixed class schools, uh, students get much more uh, engaging, on average, uh, much more engaging uh, pedagogy and much more engaging curriculum. The, the teaching is much more interactive uh, and engaging. Uh, then uh, uh, in, in uh, the, te- the teaching is much more interactive and engaging in sort of the wealthier context than in, than in lower income context. Uh, so, you know, if, if we keep doing that, it doesn't matter how much money we put into that teaching, uh, uh, in a sense. But, but the extra money also is, is really also about things like we have lower income schools where there's no science lab, and then in the wealthier districts, the schools have science labs or fields to play on, or updated equipment, or you know uh, whatever whatever it is. So some of it is also just about the infrastructure of the schools. Uh, but if we keep doing the same practices, the same teaching practices, more money isn't necessarily going to. To, to help shift that if we keep doing the, the same thing. Okay, so what are some of the different things that we should be doing? Well, I, I think, um, you know, this is tough because it depends on what uh, kind of uh, what kind of context you're talking about. And it's, it's also the, not just an easy answer either. No, not at all. I mean, I think part of the problem is uh, that the sort of influx of high-stakes testing 
has put schools in a position to do things that are completely nonsensical when it comes to good teaching. So things like, well, we have to worry about the, uh, you know, test. We have to give students test-taking lessons, and we need to uh, worry about uh, what they're going to get on these tests rather than what they're actually learning. And so that's how you end up with the kind of rote. Uh, skills and drills curriculum or uh, teaching in a high-poverty context where you have a much more uh, engaging teaching in, in a wealthier context. You have other situations in which schools are cutting arts programs and, and, uh, and physical education and cutting back on recess for kids that need extra help in math. When we have research going back 100 years that shows that that uh, students who have access to those things do better in school, and we have research that shows lower-income kids have the least amount of access to those things outside of schools. So I think there are these bigger, um, these bigger barriers uh, that have to do with federal and state-level education policy that, that also have to be addressed. So, uh, Sherry Woodall, let me bring you in here. Uh, you're on the ground seeing this every day. Um, now, let's go start with the standardized test part of it. I mean, I have heard from educators over the past, well, you know, even before No Child Left Behind, that, uh, you know, they really don't like teaching to the test. And that's what it's become in many, in many schools. How do you stay away from that? And is that accurate? I mean, is that what is that is what is happening today? And address some of the things that Dr. Korsky said about some of the things that uh, many people look at as a luxury, like arts, like music, like recess. Now, you don't have, probably don't have recess in high school, but still, you know, physical activity. We have intervention classes at the high school. And these are classes for students who have not passed the PSSA or Keystone exams, because as you know, right now, 2017, the Keystone exams were originally supposed to be a graduation requirement. However, some of the more affluent districts were having a hard time with their students making the Keystone requirement. So the state has pushed that back until 2019. Now we'll see what happens at 2019. But we have these courses that the students are mandated to take their extra math courses, extra reading courses, and they're not engaging. They are strictly memorization. These, memorization. These are the skills that you need to know for the test. Now, something that I'm doing for this year, I, they're not effective courses. The students don't take them seriously. The teachers don't like teaching them because they're geared to taking a test. So something that I'm doing differently this year is we're rewriting curriculum for teachers to teach interesting classes, African-American literature, and and integrate some of those keystone standards into that course instead of having an intervention course. We have lost our arts program. We have one art teacher in our building. We have no technology education programs in our building. We have no home economics or family consumer sciences in our building. We have band, no chorus. Students take a rudimentary music course in ninth grade, but... What are your students missing with all those things? They're missing access to the arts and the realities of the world. I mean, they're going to graduate from high school, and they're not going to understand, you know, how to sew a button on their clothes, how to make eggs, how to balance a checkbook, how to fix something in their house. Key skills that we all need to be functional citizens of society. They're not going to have those skills because they're busy sitting in a class, an extra math class, learning how to balance an equation, which is equally important. I do believe that is important, but... 
is that really helping prepare them for their their future in society. Dr. Gorski, you have written that uh, you think that the, the arts, uh, for example, are a good teaching tool, that they shouldn't be looked upon as just a luxury or something for uh, the students to enjoy and, you know, maybe uh, get a, away from math class or reading for uh, 45 minutes. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and that's not just me saying that. That's, that's based on about 100 years of research uh, that actually shows that uh, students who have access to the arts, to music, to drama, actually do better in school uh, and do better in every subject area. And, and as you might imagine, for example, there are connections between people having access to formal music education and, and, uh, and uh, their success in math uh, because there are connections between uh, music, uh, music and math. And so, again, we've known for decades that, that having access to these things, uh, to these opportunities, uh, help people do better in, in school. Uh, and uh, yet in many districts, because of funding issues or because of test score issues, uh, they, they are sort of the first things to go. And again, you have the low-income students who know in that wealthier school three or four miles away uh, or in that wealthier district 10 or 12 miles away that 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 the kids are getting access to these things uh and, and so it's just kind of a nonsensical uh, approach to to uh, improving education you're listening to smart talk on witf your home for npr news and all things regional i'm scott lamar Welcome back to Smart Talk. Uh, our guest today, Dr. Paul Gorski, who is an associate professor of integrative studies and a research fellow in the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being at George Mason University, author of several books, considered an expert on inequality, equity in school funding, uh, teaching uh, and reaching. That's actually one of the titles of his books, of children in uh, poverty. Uh, also, Sherry Woodall, who is principal at Steelton and High Spire High School. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, one 800 729-7532. That's the number to call. You also can send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. If you have a question or comment, you can also list it on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter at smarttalkwitf. That is a phone number again, 1-800-729-7532. And we're going to take some phone calls here in just a moment. Dr. Gorski will be speaking to school leaders at Capital Area Intermediate Unit on January 12th next week as part of an ongoing series focused on equity and excellence. CAIU is, a proud, is proud to support WITF series Chasing the Dream, Poverty and Opportunity in America. All right, let's uh, go to the phones now and uh, talk with some of our listeners. Michael is in York. Michael, thanks for waiting on the line. Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate you taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I, want, I want to make an observation. And, and my wife is a teacher in New York City School District. I grew up in North Philadelphia at the place we now call the Badlands. So I have some experience with impoverished populations. And I think that all impoverished populations are not peopled by folks who are working three jobs and care about their families and their children. There are, in fact, many dysfunctions associated with poverty, drug dealing, violence, all of those kinds of things. And so long as we ignore that part, um, we're, 
we're doing a disservice to the children who are stuck in that situation. And if you look across Pennsylvania, you'll find that pretty much all of the school districts that do poorly are school districts that serve impoverished populations. Hmm. And it's not all because uh, the, the, the parents are working two and three jobs. It's because the children are exposed to a great deal of dysfunction and lack of support and parents who don't care about education. That's my comment. Michael, thank you very much for your call. Dr. Gorski, he is correct in that there are uh, challenges out there other than just, uh, you know, working those two, three jobs, not having enough money for some of the basics and some of the things he described. That is reality. Some of the things you described, yes. Other things like they don't care about education, that's been measured a hundred different ways uh, and it's just simply on average uh, that piece uh, isn't true. But, but of course, in, in every community, uh, there are problems with uh, drugs and violence and, and other sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, the, it's interesting because actually in the U.S., uh, wealthy school-aged children are much more likely to be affected by uh, drug use and abuse uh, than, than lower-income kids, not because they're bad kids, but they just have more access to drugs. The, the big difference, though, is that uh, wealthy communities can afford services and that sort of thing to, to, help, deal with those, uh, to help deal with those issues. Uh, a lot of that happens in things like uh, preventive health care and and, and those sorts of things. So, you know, I, I, of course I'm not trying to say that those problems don't exist or that we shouldn't uh, talk about those problems directly. My concern is that the whole conversation around educational outcome disparities often turns into a list of things that are wrong with people in poverty while we ignore the fact that... Uh, that uh, access and opportunity are not uh, doled out uh, fairly. And uh, so, you know, uh, of course there are problems with drugs and, and, uh, and in some poor communities, gang violence and those sorts of things that, that need to be taken into account as well. Well, single-family homes, I think, would be a, a big issue. Uh, you know, Ms. Woodall, do you have any idea what percentage of your students come from single-family homes? Not off the top of my head, but I do know there is a high percentage that come from a single-family home. But just to go back to our caller, there are higher incidences of, or there are high, I don't want to say higher, but high incidences of drug use and violence in poorer communities. And a lot of that stems from mental health issues. We need to have mental health services available for these people. And that's what Dr. Gorski was also talking about was in wealthier communities, people have access to the health services. In poorer communities, they don't have access to the mental health counseling that a lot of these families need to make it through so they're not resorting to drugs and violence. What about special education? We have a very high incidence of special education, which, Dr. Gorski, I'm not sure how much research you've done on it, but if you're growing up in poverty, the stressors that are on your brain link very similarly to traumatic, like post-traumatic yeah, stress disorder. So, again, going back to mental health. Mm -hmm. Dr. Gorski, what about that? Yeah, I agree. Again, I, I think the, the um, uh, and the, there's a lot of research about about the, the impact on children's brain of growing up in poverty, uh, with the stresses, with the lack of nutrition, and and those sorts of things. And I think all of that needs to 
be taken into account. And in my research, of course, I, I take all of that uh, into account. I think that the danger is that it's much more comfortable for people to sort of focus on, focus on what's broken about poor people and how do we fix people in poverty, and then we stray away from the bigger and what I would consider to be the more important conversation, which is, you know, how, how do we make sure that lower-income kids aren't getting cheated out of the uh, sorts of resources that other children uh, have, have access to? Let's take a phone call from Laura in Enola. Laura, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, so here I am. I am in my early 30s. And I've only just discovered my passion with no great ease, and I'm starting college. Um, and the point I make in that is because I was unchallenged, bored, disinterested, no guidance. And with everything else that both previous callers and the panel is saying regarding the opportunities, uh, they're all there. All those items are present and the lack of motivation for young students, and I definitely experienced them all. Um, I would go so far as to say that I would blame standardized testing for adding to the dullness of our youth. Uh, we live in a world where kids experience a vast amount of emotional, physical, mental, all that um, growth and disparity in other areas of life that when you walk into school you don't get to express it anymore you don't get to explore it anymore the kids are being dulled by that system and i i think that that's a huge contribution to the to the lack of interest and in growth in schools and young people wow. i think we need to take a person-centered approach and help students find their passions and their interests and build on that and that will help combat all the other areas of their life that tend to bring you down when you're that young. Laura, thank you. Thank you very much for your call. Basically, what she's saying, uh, Dr. Gorski, is no inspiration there. Is that a problem? Yeah, yeah. I certainly think for a lot of students, that's uh, that's part uh, part of the problem. I mean, it's part of the bigger uh, puzzle that we're trying to to, to put together here. Uh, and, and I think, again, I think schools are in kind of a tough position because they're mandated uh, to, to do these tests, and then they're, they're judged based on the results of the tests. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of a tough uh, it's kind of a tough policy issue that needs to be, uh, that needs to be addressed. I, I do think we're sort of the pendulum is starting to swing back uh, a little bit around uh, that, that sort of thing. And there are districts around the country who are uh, fighting to cut back on tests or creating sort of very liberal opt-out um, policies uh, for the test as well. Mm -hmm. You know, something that uh, you, you've written about, and, uh, and, I, and I guess I have to ask the question this way. You know, when, when we talk about um, 
how you, know, you look at accountability, and that's what the politicians in Harrisburg, Washington, uh, you know, every state capital have been talking about. Okay, we have to have a way to measure accountability. No child left behind was supposed to be doing that, but it had such a reliance on test scores, and we still do. So if you don't rely on test scores, and especially in school districts where there is a high concentration of students living in poverty, how do you measure what they've learned, Dr. Gorski? I don't have any problem with, I, I mean, I think some amount of uh, standardized testing is okay if it's used uh, in sensible ways, if it's used the way that uh, tests like that are designed to be used, which is, well, you know, what can we as a school be doing better uh, in terms of uh, certain areas of our teaching? What are the needs that this student has and that this student has? Uh, those, those sorts of things I, I think are okay. But I, I think the uh, the volume of standardized testing that's happening, there are school districts where kindergartners are getting standardized tests. And that, to me, that's like child abuse. I, I don't understand how that can how that can happen. Um, but, but there, of course, there are other things. There are teachers who are trained to be teachers who know how their, their uh, students are doing and to rely more on the expertise of people who are spending an entire school year uh, with a child uh, to rely on that uh, in addition to a test that a student takes one day out of that school year, uh, I think uh, could uh, could help a lot. Mm-hmm. Let's take a phone call from Dennis in Camp Hill. Dennis, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. I appreciate this a great deal. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I had a very interesting uh, doctor. I want you to pay attention to this. I'm 70 years old. I'm going back to school to finish my Ph.D., so I'm still learning. I went up to the Q Creek mine disaster a few years ago, and I ran into something very cultural. I don't know how pervasive this is. I says, when these guys come out of there, what happens? They're, well, they're going back. They're going to mine coal because we mine coal. And I got a little bit testy. I said, supposing some industry comes in and changes it. No, no, no. You don't understand. Our grandfather's mine coal. Our son's mine coal. Our husband's mine coal. Our sons and grandsons will mine coal because that's what we do. We do not change. And they grew up in an atmosphere in western Pennsylvania where you went into the coal mines. Not the coal mines, the steel mills. And you work the steel mill, and you don't think about doing anything else because that's what you do. Both of these industries are dead. And these people will not change. I don't know how you get over this cultural thing, Doctor. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm that, in a quandary. Thank, thank you. you very much for your call. Dr. Gorski, what do you th- think about that? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it reminds me of my own family story. You know, my, my people were originally uh, farmers, and the coal companies came in, and uh, the lumber companies came in and basically destroyed the, the land so that it couldn't be farmed anymore. And now people had to make a choice. Either I uh, go and uh, either I become a, a coal miner or I go into the military. Those are basically the options my grandfather uh, my grandfather had. Uh, and so that, that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is that in a lot of those communities, that's really the only uh, employment opportunity uh, that, that people have. Something that's interesting that's been happening for decades is that in a lot of those communities, there's a lot of conflict between the people who are saying we need the coal mines because that's the the employment opportunity here, and other people in the same community saying, uh, you know, this is destroying our our community. 
But I think, you know, the point he's making is that there is a culture of poverty. uh, And I I guess if I asked the question, it would be what role does education play in in that, in in getting out of that culture of poverty, changing the culture? Well, I, I would, first of all, just challenge the notion that there's a culture of poverty. That suggests that every person who's in poverty in whatever region they live in, whatever religion they're in, whatever part of the country, that they all share cultural attributes, and that that notion has uh, that that uh, notion has been pretty well debunked. Yeah, that's something at, that at you write point. about often. That uh, you know, people living in poverty are not homogenous. That it's just not. Oh, if they live in poverty; they have to be the same way, right? Right, uh, absolutely, and so uh, you know, so. You know, I think, again, that the role that education could play or the wider society could play is opening up different uh, opportunities for uh, um, different uh, opportunities for youth to, uh, you know, imagine themselves uh, doing uh, a wide variety of things. But the problem is, again, if I've seen every generation of my family, the last couple of generations of my family being stuck and, and this kind of work or being stuck in that kind of work, then, then it, it can become difficult for me to imagine uh, that, you know, that even if I work as hard as I can, that I'm not also going to be uh, going to be uh, stuck there. We only have a few minutes left. I want to thank both of you for being on today. Uh, Sherry, we're on about 30 seconds. I know this is hard to do in about 30 seconds. Uh, your high school. If you could make a wish list of what you need, what would it be? I would like more resources to help our struggling students with mental health issues, to help our struggling students experience the same educational equities that other schools have. Again, our students aren't exposed to the arts, the music, technology education. I would like for them to be exposed to that, and I would like for people to know our kids work hard and they want more for their lives, but they don't always have the opportunity. Dr. Gorski, I'm you know, asking you a very complicated question with about 60 seconds to go, but if you could recommend, and you've talked about this throughout the program, recommendations you would make to reach children, uh, students living in poverty, about 40 seconds. Yeah, well, first of all, it would be awesome to have a principal like Principal Woodall and, and all of uh, these low-income schools, who, who uh, people who uh, will be an, an, uh, an advocate. So first, I just want to uh, thank her for the work that she's doing uh, on the ground in one of the schools. Uh, but, but again, I, I think the most important thing that we can do, uh, this isn't maybe practical, as practical as you would want, but I think developing as deep an understanding as possible of the challenges that low-income students face outside of school and inside school, and then do everything that we can do to address those instead of developing policies or strategies that are about fixing people who are in poverty. Instead, fix the barriers or eliminate the barriers experienced by people experiencing poverty. Dr. Paul Gorsuch. Dr. Paul Gorski, I hate to interrupt you, and Sherry Woodall, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow, a man who interrogated Saddam Hussein.